Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Smaller Coning Podcast. First, I just want to thank you for tuning in. I've heard a lot of good feedback on my discussions of, air quotes, the perfect property pyramid. We've already tackled the very tippy top of it and then the layer right beneath it, which was, coincidentally, layers and zones. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be tackling limited pressure and designed pressure. Limited and designed pressure. We're getting into a part of the pyramid that is so interwoven with the two pieces beneath it. One could argue that the next three podcasts and the next three parts of this pyramid you can't really have a base, obviously, and you can't really have the perfect property without these three things. So I'm going to try to tackle this. I'm going to try to unweave, if you will, and segment out just limited and designed pressure and not let other things, which are part of the pyramid, get discussed, basically. I'm going to try to separate the overlap. So stay tuned. Let's discuss the perfect property pyramid. You are listening to the Small Liquor Hunting Podcast, the hunting podcast that is free of advertisements, bought and paid for opinions, and minutes and minutes of sponsorships. If that's what you want, there's a plethora of other podcasts out there. Here, we're going to talk openly, we're going to talk honestly, and we're going to live in the real world. Free of sponsorships and paid for advertisements and opinions that are governed and dictated by them that sounds interesting stay tuned for this episode of the smally grounding podcast all right i am looking forward to this hopefully i can kind of make sense of this whole thing this podcast could take a while so up front this may turn into a two-part podcast. I'm not 100% sure when I start this, so I'm not going to know, but you guys will know if this is like, you know, uh, part one or part two, you'll know. But anyways, enough rambling. Um, I did want to start this podcast because of something that happened this week, kind of like a little bit of a funny story, if you will. Um, As you just listened to the introduction, it talks about no sponsors, no paid for advertisements, no paid for opinions. I'm not bought and sold like a lot of people. And, and again, I've touched on this before. Just having sponsors and having advertisements um, is not a bad thing, if you will. However, I do believe, and I will go to my grave believing this, the second you start taking money from anybody, whether it be in a sponsorship-type relationship or an advertising-type of relationship, both of those are relationships, it begins to change your approach, and your wording because you don't want to necessarily make the people who are putting money in your pockets upset or uncomfortable with the content that you're delivering or the thoughts that you're presenting. So I don't care who you are. You cannot stay completely clean of biasness if you start taking money from people. But that leads me to this funny story. So I get this email in the Small Acre Hunting um, email that I have And it was a person from an outdoor company. Um, I kind of looked them up. It looked like they were a little bit kind of like a sportsman's warehouse type thing or like a sportsman's guide. Um, They were an online retail site for all things outdoors, Um, hunting, fishing, camping, things of that nature. And uh, this 
this gentleman who's part of their marketing team was reaching out wanting to get in touch with podcasts that had audiences that their clientele are you know potential additional customers you know they want to up their revenue and um, income obviously so they're reaching out to podcasts and this gentleman um was basically saying you know I, I tuned in i really like your podcast i actually became a follower um because i liked it so much even though i was tasked with just finding stuff i actually found it really infor- I, I grew up on a smaller so he said something like that and i was like oh really that's awesome um you know he went into we'd like to know what your levels are for advertising sponsorships and things of that nature and i started thinking now there is a chance he listened to old ones but if you listen to my podcast and if you listen to more than one you're most likely going to know that I'm not a fan of sponsors and advertisers. So I was like, hmm. You know, I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. So I emailed him back. I was like, oh, thank you for reaching out. I really appreciate the kind words that you have to say about the podcast and such. I'm just curious, what was your favorite episode so far that you listened to? And it, and he didn't really respond for a while. But then when he finally did, it was actually the uh, Perfect Property Pyramid the three podcasts that we've had and I was like hmm so I just find that a little ironic I think it's hilarious clearly this is a great example of how when you introduce money and money is what's driving people's communications money is what drives um, the industry people don't give a crap about the content they don't give a crap about the quality they don't care about anything beyond the dollar bill signs and it's nothing against this gentleman he's merely doing his job but it's just a small example of how he, he clearly didn't even listen to the podcast. You can't listen more than a minute in. You're listening to the introduction and bam. And he didn't just fast forward it three times perfectly to not hear it. So I just think it's hilarious. It's a great example of how the industry works. It's another example of why I've turned down numerous advertisers, numerous sponsorships, some that would have put, you know, from anything from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars in my pocket potentially and it's just not enough like you can't buy my loyalty like that you can, it's not for sale but i just find that funny so i appreciate everybody that tunes in because i know the majority of my fan base thinks similar to me i mean that's why you guys are here why you gals are here you don't want to hear just slogans and taglines that are written by advertisers or marketing teams you want to hear real life content from a real life person And we're going to get into some real-life situations that, honestly, I'm still dealing with in this very topic. So you've heard me talk about the perfect property pyramid. And every time you hear me say perfect, I am doing air quotes. You just can't see it because this is an audio version. Someday, maybe when I get my downstairs set up in my studio, I'll live stream these as well. But you've heard me talk about the perfect property pyramid. You've heard me discuss that what we're trying to do is... I'm trying to present to you things that I see on properties which routinely put forth good bucks. Um, You know, this pyramid that I'm discussing lays out basically five aspects or traits of a property. I feel I've seen in every single property I know that has yielded sustained success for hunters chasing not just white-tailed deer, but bucks. And bucks that sit at the top 10, 15, 20% of the localized deer herd in that hunter's area. So we've already tackled food. It's kind of the tippy top of the pyramid. It's 
the cherry on top, if you will. Um, but it's not the most important. It's not the biggest. Then as we move down, we have layers and zones. We talked about departmentalizing not just our property, but the property within the property. Setting up those hotel rooms on those hotel floors inside of the hotel. And you could even micromanage it when everything gets fired even more. You could start setting up rooms or compartments or sleeping areas and bathrooms and such. I'm using the hotel reference of the actual bedrooms inside the rooms, inside the floors, inside the hotel. So we talked about that last time. Make sure you check back if this is their first um, podcast that you're listening to. Go back a couple episodes, the start of the Perfect Property Pyramid series, and listen to those before you get here so it kind of makes sense. But you don't necessarily have to, but I would recommend it. On this episode, we're going to be talking about limited and designed pressure. And pressure can come in a wide, wide range of things um, that can apply pressure, which I will also include stress. Because typically, when we think of pressure, we think of human intrusion, interactions with the deer that cause them stress, stress them out, and they try to avoid stress. Whether that be, well, we'll get into what, what that might look like. But I'm kind of, I'm going to break this into two major parts. One, I'm going to call external factors. And when I say external, or you could think uncontrollable. The uncontrolled or external factors which apply pressure to our property. And then we're going to talk about internal or controllable factors that apply pressure to our properties. And we're going to kind of flesh both of those out and unpack them a little bit. So speaking first to the external and the, for the most part, uncontrollable items which apply pressure and ultimately apply stress to the deer that we're trying to attract and keep and hold and hunt, there's three major things that we're going to tackle. One, our neighbors or people. Second is weather mother nature and the third is life and that one might sound a little uh, odd but we'll get there the first one is the category of neighbors that apply external or for the most part uncontrollable pressures um, the first and most obvious one is neighboring hunters this can be a good or a bad thing for your property you know, it's funny, everybody's always like, you know, we like to complain about our neighbors. And typically, the complaining that I hear is because you hunt next to property lines, sloppy hunters. Um, they hunt whenever they can, not when they should. They don't pay attention to wind. They're, they're just, they shoot whatever they want. You know, all these negative attributes that we don't necessarily think make up a good hunter or don't make up a good hunter, honestly. Uh, but the same respect... Do you really want to be hunting next door to Don Higgins or somebody who's clearly most likely going to out-hunt you? Are you going to get frustrated? So it's like, do you want a good or a bad neighbor? But both extremes could be external pressure factors or that are applying stress to your deer herd. Um, obviously, you can't control another hunter's actions, so that's why they're in this category of it. Um, but some of the things that... I think a lot of people 
dwell on, and myself included, is the actions of others. Um, I'm going to include in this, you know, it's not just hunters, but you have non-hunters that are going to apply pressure and ultimately stress to your property. These are homeowners that are just using their property. You know, um, it, it's a small stressor, it's a small pressure, but you know, the timing of when the neighbor is mowing their back four acre uh, yard or pasture that butts right up to the backside of maybe a bedding corridor or a travel corridor or your property in some capacity, that's gonna influence the use during that time frame possibly you know neighbors having their grandkids up and they're tearing around that same back area or along the property line with go-karts or dirt bikes you know or walking the dog and stuff like they're doing absolutely nothing wrong so we can't be mad but you know we frustration does set in but these are things that we cannot control these are things that you know for, for the most part there's literally nothing we can do. Um, you know, if you have a really good relationship with neighbors, I, I've heard of cases where, you know, neighbors will, you know, oh, that's right, it's hunting season, it's the weekend. Our next door neighbor, Sam, he's probably back there. So they text and they're like, hey, are you back there hunting? My grandkids want to go back to the creek, but we don't want to interfere or, you know, run the risk of injury or something like that. Um, so they'll text. You know, and that's something that maybe some of you have really good relationships with your non-hunting neighbors or even hunting neighbors, or maybe they're just gun hunters, but it's bow season. And they, if they know you're back there, they may stay away. Those are things that maybe we can control it, but you still technically can't control it to the point where you can tell people, no, you cannot use your property. Another example of a similar situation are farmers or workers. Um, you know, last year I had to deal with people building on the property next door. Um, I don't know their schedule. Um, they tried to give me a rough estimate of when they would be there, but you know, the higher ups don't know when the subcontractors are going to be there. They don't know, you know, when the, the grader is going to be able to be available and then bam, it is. And right now with costs the way it is and, and, and resources being as costly as they are, you can't blame them for jumping at the opportunity and not worrying about the guy next door that emailed them two months prior um, that might be back there hunting. I, I can't. I can't realistically expect them to do that, um, even though they are some of the people that I've had trespassing issues with. You'd think they'd maybe be a little bit more cautious, but I need to not um, dwell on that. Uh, farmers are another good example. You know, knowing the harvest schedule, if possible, is a way to maybe factor in this external. Um, pressure that you can't control um, you know depending on what they're harvesting it is great opportunity to make sure you're there when they're done because the deer will pour out sometimes depending what they're doing and what they're harvesting it's like a dinner bell for deer other times depending what they're doing depending where their actions how late they're going to be harvesting and maybe they're going to harvest into the night well then it's detrimental for you to, to go out there and hunt that night. It would not be a good idea. And knowing the schedule, um, you know, some of us hunt properties that lease out farm ground on it to a farmer. 
So it's like, do you communicate with the landowner? Do you communicate with the farmer? Try to talk to both. Try to figure out, hey, landowner, do you mind if I reach out to so-and-so who's farming your back 40 just so I can kind of get an estimate and maybe check in with them, you know, before I use vacation days and something like that. I don't want to interfere with them. You know, I don't want to waste my vacation days type of a thing. So there are some ways that you can be proactive in your approach to even these non-controllable um, external factors that exist on pretty much every single property. And I think the smaller the property, the more you have to worry about this because typically speaking, the smaller properties have more neighbors because it's more of a chopped up parcel section of your geographical area. Um, places with larger swaths of parcels typically are less dense in population, less chance of people, and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the final uh, external factor or pressure applier in the neighbors or people uh, section is trespassers. Um, I have been <laughs> I've been inundated with trespassers as many of you know um, and I've been through the gamut of emotions and emotional responses and how how to respond to it. Um, I've, 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 I've taken many cases to law and they, you know, they only can do so much without a name and such. Uh, I've had great success using social media to track down people's names, but even then you got to worry about family members of those people, then messaging you, attacking you. Um, coming back to haunt you in that capacity. Um, if you, if, if you're like me and you have some very undesirable type people, um, people who are uh, detrimental to a society, detrimental to a community, who are not adding anything of value at this point in their life, not saying they couldn't in the future. Basically, I'm trying to politely put criminals, bad people, um, people with a checkered past and history of violence. Um, I've had a few of those people trespass on my land and those people make me even more nervous um, but trespassers in general are a trigger that stir up an emotional response for many of us that is hard to describe but those of us who have dealt with it completely understand the frustration and, and, and how I'm having trouble describing the feeling that one gets you know you you feel betrayed, you almost feel violated, or you do feel violated, but in a very unique manner and way. You know, that most of us work very hard to own our land, pay taxes on our land, um, ensure and take care of that land. You know, our sweat and our blood and our boots have touched that ground and made it what it is for many of us that are listening to this and myself. And to see another person just not care enough to respect that and literally every single person that I've had walk onto my property have walked right past a property line marker a no trespassing sign of some kind every single one of them I mean I, I get pictures of people literally feet from them and it doesn't matter these are not people who are adding to society 
I hate to say it, at that time in their life, and I pray that they change. I, I have found myself, I used to get so worked up and mad, every, guys that are listening, gals that are listening, I used to get so worked up and mad that my wife couldn't even talk to me for days. I would be so angry about these people. And you're not, it's not unjust to feel that way. However, here's what I'm learning is those people can really, really erode your love of the outdoors. You know, I know some of us have said, you know, this is one of the greatest loves of our lives. It's not just a hobby, it's a passion. Um, nothing recharges our internal batteries and releases this um, the same amount of stress as it as it does hunting as it does working the land you know getting our hands and feet dirty from labor on it um and then reaping the benefits of that being able to hunt being able to pursue deer on that land i get that i've been there i want to get back to that because <laughs> if i'm honest with you the countless times of trespassing has worn me down to the point I am not at the same point I used to be. I don't love hunting like I used to. I don't have the craving and the desire to go to the land. And when I do have it, a part of me convinces me not to go. Because I'm just going to find another sign of trespassing. I'm going to find footsteps. I'm going to find cameras taken. I'm going to find pictures on cameras that weren't taken that captured them being there like i i fear going to my property for more frustration and lately i've figured out that nothing i do is going to stop it sadly i mean short of 24/7 surveillance and that's just not feasible not possible um i don't have the budget to justify cellular cameras at every single possible most likely entrance to my property nor could i justify that so i've i've, I've i'm starting to learn i need to just let it go take action when it happens but don't let them take away my love of designing and pursuing the perfect property for the deer that I'm chasing. It's a pressure that I can never eradicate completely. I can put up my property signs at every possible spot. You know, that's a good thing. We should do that. And I'm going to circle back, and I kind of got off on a tangent about but about trespassing and how it makes you feel and handling it. But hopefully there's people out there listening that maybe you're going through the same thing, and you need to hear somebody else say you need to let that anger go, you need to let that frustration go, and you need to just think proactively what you can do because you're never going to eradicate, you're not going to get rid of it, you're not going to stop it most likely. But that doesn't mean you have to do nothing. Okay, I'm not saying avoid it because it doesn't work. It just makes you feel worse. So don't avoid it like I do or like I've been doing 
to an extent. I'm lessening and lessening that. Um, but you can be proactive. All of these external measures, you know, I was talking about the, the farmers reaching out and having dialogue and, and kind of knowing their estimated schedule. Neighboring homeowners, getting in a good relationship with them, just them knowing that you hunt back there. You might be shocked. You may never know the amount of times that they were going to take a walk. But hey, it's October 27th. Neighbor Joe could be back there. Maybe let's walk down the street instead. You may never know or see the impact of having that relationship with your neighbor. Likewise, you may never know. Yes, one trespasser can ruin your mood for an entire fall. An entire year. But because he walked past your signs, maybe he stole cameras. But you don't know how many times people have decided, let's go walk that vacant property we've seen. You know, nobody cares about it. Nobody's back there. We're just walking. We're just mushroom hunting or whatever. Then they get there and they see no trespassing signs. And they turn around and they walk away. You don't know how many times that's worked. You know, you don't know how many times hinge cutting your property line that used to be open is now closed. How many times people have learned, oh, I can't go back there anymore. Clearly somebody doesn't want me back there. Because look what they, what, whatever they did with these trees, it's like a living hedge now. It's fence row. It sends a message, you know. So you don't know how many times that's worked. So be proactive in it. You know, is there, is there anything you can do to lessen it? You know, learn to accept that which you cannot control. But control everything that you can. Almost to the degree of lunacy. You know, uh, I'm at peace that I've done many proactive things to deter trespassing, to deter stealing of my cameras. And I need to just accept the fact that it could still happen, that I could still have trespassing. I can't shut down every entrance to my property. You know, I can't put up a high fence because then I wouldn't have the wild deer herd as much as I would love to be able to do that. Um, to have the high fence for blocking trespassers not to have a high fence hunting preserve I have zero desire to do that for anybody listening but just being proactive and hanging signs hanging cameras high deterring from others getting in good with the neighbors that can keep an eye on your property when you're not there if you don't live on your property that's another problem with my place not only is it in a, in a semi-urban area it's got a lot of neighbors um, but it's got a lot of dead zone areas where even the neighbors can't see if somebody parks or comes on or comes on from the neighboring property or something like that. But I've hinged cut multiple spots. I have a couple ideas to block one or two more spots that I need to do. Um, I just got to actually get motivated to do it and not let the discouragement of this negate my plans. So I have to be proactive. I have to do what I'm telling you guys to do. Be proactive in your approaches and not reactive. Um, I think that's enough on that. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer or anything like that. But, you know, these are real life factors that you're going to have to consider um, when you make your decisions on hunting, on property design. You know, if you've got a neighbor that there's 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 multiple different ways that you can approach it. And depending on the layout of your property, you know, if you have a very highly active neighbor on one side of your property well if you have good access and entrance and now we're going to get into something i'm, I'm just going to touch on this i don't want to go this route too much 
and maybe we'll, we definitely will circle back to this in the next one. But, you know, sometimes your highly active neighbors are that border your property. That is the perfect border to use as entrance and exit if it works for your property. Another tactic is putting your bedding right up to it because, and depending on the size, you may not be able to get away with this, but yes, they're going to disturb it, but they're just going to bounce those deer deeper in towards or away from that edge into more thick cover, hopefully, if you have it, if you have a large enough spot, and you can hinge a hard line, and the deer are going to know and associate where safety and not safety is, where freedom from most intrusion your place and very little intrusion the neighbor who runs his four-wheelers all the time down through the woods so you have to be proactive and think and ask yourself how will the deer respond to insert scenario and think of ways that you can begin to utilize that to your advantage you know there's Speaking of the farmers and such, if you know a farmer is harvesting, there have been numerous guys that I know, and it's something that I would do if it fit any of my properties. I have one that maybe, but because of a culvert install and it's still not uh, closed back up, I can't really use this. But I had always thought about there was a couple of trees that were they're hard to get to because they're right along a bedding area. But I was like, you know what? If a harvester was going along that edge and I followed it, that's enough disturbance to get me to that tree. And the deer are hearing all this audible noise that they recognize as no danger and they recognize as normal operations. If I can get up that tree, you know, get to the tree when the when the harvester comes by, climb the tree when it comes by that second swath, and maybe the third time if I got to raise my bow or do something like that, or, you know, it all depends on the situation, but it's something that I could proactively plan because, hey, this is an arguably a negative that I can be proactive with and possibly turn to a positive. So we've talked about neighbors and othering other people. Um, weather is something that you got to learn to adapt to. Just like neighbors or unwanted trespassers, we cannot control the weather. So we got to be proactive and not reactive. You know, uh, some years we we hear, uh, you know, we hear about guys dealing with long heat in October and even into November, an unseasonably warm time frame. You got to start asking that question: How are the deer going to respond? Where are the deer going to go? <clears throat> how are they responding, and how will they respond? Be proactive in your thought process. A lot of guys sometimes wait to see what the deer are doing. And by the time you realize what they're doing, it's too late and something's changed. So don't just and but but that doesn't that doesn't remove the value of always asking those questions. You know, whenever I'm hunting, whether it's a good hunt or a bad hunt, you know, if I don't see deer, I do see deer, I'm always asking questions. You know, why didn't I see deer tonight? Well, perhaps they were bedded here because of the pre-dawn wind that occurred. Um, or, you know what, the neighbor's working on a shed down there to the south. Maybe that bumped and pushed those deer farther east. And instead of hooking north towards my area with these east winds, walking quartering into a northeast wind, they actually slightly tailwinded just south, just a tick to get around the pond. And then they were walking headstrong into the south side of the food using that northeast wind instead of 
tailwinding north coming by me and hooking on the north side of the pond and then having to kind of tailwind down after dark like they usually like to do or sometimes they like to do like i analyze that you know and sometimes the things that we come up with probably aren't right but you know you've got to be able to put yourself in their shoes and begin to think like a deer you know why didn't i have deer come by or man why did i see so many deer tonight in this area what food source is turning on what travel corridor changed what pressure maybe exists elsewhere that is either you know human based or is it weather based or what is the timing you know droughts can stress deer and apply pressure for them we've got to be ready to respond and possibly change how we hunt in response to it so again just like the other one you got to be proactive not reactive but also be able to react when you need to but, but having that proactive mindset, sometimes you're not actually reacting. You're implementing a plan that you already had in place because factors have lined up for that plan. The third thing that are that's in this, that I put into this external factors or uncontrollable factors that apply pressure and stress is life. And this is going to, I mean, it seems weird, but... Guys, what's going on in our lives can greatly impact our properties. You know, use it to your advantage. Sometimes all I want, (coughs) excuse me, above any, I got to take a drink. Sometimes all I want above all else is to de-stress. Work's been rough, long days, dealing with frustrating situations. And you know what, man? A day on stand would just, I just want to check out, watch nature, and maybe have a chance at a big buck. <laughs> like, nothing sounds better than that. We're like, ah, man, I'm just going to go. I need to. Because life has us burned out. And in response to that, we're going to go to something that we love. We're going to go to an escape. We're going to go to a, a thing which recharges us in a way that nothing else really does and can. So we go hunting. Yeah, the wind's not quite right. Oh, well. Uh, it's not really time to hunt mornings, but, you know, I've got it. I'm going to go. Oh, I scheduled vacation this week for hunting, so... I need to hunt. You know, you can't catch what you're not trying to fish for. A lure out of the water is a lure not catching fish type of mentality. And I'm sorry, if you're if you're chasing the top 10, 15, 20% of your bucks in your area, that's not the mindset to have. You you you've got to be patient. So you know, use life to your advantage. Have plans in place. Avoid burnout with a couple scheduled ahead of time date nights for you that are married. It's a great thing that I've implemented. Every year now, I try to set aside one night in October and one in November where me and the wife go. And and this is going to be crazy, and some of you are going to say I'm nuts, but you know I try to give that November time frame, the first week of November, when things are really amping up. 
when most of us are doing everything we can to be in the woods. I try to schedule something during that time. Now, if the weather just absolutely turns, you have a 20 degree cold snap swing. You know, my wife knows and she's understanding enough and we've talked about it that yes, if I did not spend a ton of money in advance for like tickets to something, we can switch it. We'll, we'll reschedule and we'll make it happen within the next week of, of when that occurs. But those date nights also, I'm going to speak very honestly and openly, uh, but it's something that I think especially you men listening probably need to hear. Oftentimes during hunting season, we send the message that our wives are second fiddle, that our families are second fiddle. It doesn't matter how many times we tell them otherwise, our actions are telling them that. Instead of being home, we're choosing to set up a tree. Instead of being home, helping with the kids, maybe if we have kids, helping with things around the house, if we have a house, just being with her. We're choosing to hunt instead of be with her. That's how they can see it at times. And that can slowly put a stress on our relationships. So you know how we actively try to make our properties better? It's probably why you're listening to this. You know, we take, we read articles, we listen to guys like Craig Harper, Bronson Strickland, Dr. Damaris, Rick Haney, just tons of people that are doing this thing that we love and we want to make better. We want to make our properties better. We invest time, energy, resources, money. Do the same for your marriage. Do do the same. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I used to do traveling softball a ton and it burned down our relationship almost because I, I had too many things during the week and then weekends and then hunting season you know when softball ended hunting season started and then I did the same thing there and my wife never was really excited when I would be successful you know I'd, I'd call her from the tree stand after shooting a buck and you know she was happy for me but, you know, I could hear it in her voice. It wasn't something like there wasn't joy, really, in her responses. There was happiness. She enjoyed, you know, we, we, we love to see our significant others, those that we care about, happy. So she had that type of feeling. But there wasn't that joy, that sense of sharing in the joyous moment together. But that's all changed since I stopped hunting as much because I've hunted smarter, which is a whole other topic. Um, but hunting smarter is starting to get touched on here because choosing when to hunt is something that we can control. And that's going to lead me into the next section. But before I get there, there is nothing while I'm on this kick of, you know, marital advice, I guess. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Smaller Hunting Marital Podcast. <laughs> But seriously, you know, when I can still remember when, you know, with literally emotional tears of just release of the adrenaline probably going down my cheeks. I remember calling my wife when I shot Cicero, 
probably the one and only Booner I will ever kill in my life. But I remember calling her and just, when I said I got him and who it was, like she knew and she, I, I just remember her, wow, oh my word, Ty, this is amazing. Like I remember her uttering those words and then just asking a few questions and just, oh my gosh, like you know how sometimes you're left speechless but you're just, you're 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 saying words and of encouragement. Oh my gosh! Oh my word! Oh. Like she was doing that back. That's usually just me over the phone, and she's waiting for me to be like, "Okay, I got to go get it." Or Dad's gonna be here sooner. I got to go back to the truck, and she's like, "Okay, yeah, bye, love you." No, this was a moment that she was soaking in, and she could sense the important. And I and I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you guys. There is nothing like sharing joy of the harvest with those that you love period there is nothing like it you know there's nothing like sharing the joy of the harvest with my dad pops there there and and to have my wife equally as joy in a different way because she's not a hunter she has no desire to be in the woods and you know i'm not allowed to have my trophies hanging up in the living room (laughs) i'm not bitter about that i kind of am a little bit but there's nothing like it. You know, she, it's completely changed everything. So, so plan a few nights during the hunting season that she knows she's important. And if you have kids, do the same thing with them. Have a family night out. Maybe even give them one night. It's one night, guys. It's one night. Once in October, once in November. You know, don't just say you'll do it in December when the weather's rough and it's, you'd rather stay in anyways and it's a good excuse. No, honestly, you need to feel it a little bit, the hunter side of you, that man, it would be good to be out there. I remember going to a show, I don't remember what year, but it was like, I don't know, it was the first week of November or maybe into that November 9th, 10th area, but I'm getting alert after alert on my phone, guys are texting me, deer are just moving there's deer falling everywhere in my area and i'm sitting there watching the show and i remember i kind of put my phone on on silent so it wouldn't vibrate so i wouldn't know and i shoved the phone deep in my pocket grabbed my wife's hand and just soaked in the moment you need to learn to do that and i actually think your hunting will benefit from it and ultimately your property will okay i promise no more marital advice on this we're going to get back to talking about things. But you'll see how, like, this all inter- intertwines. It all weaves together. You know, and, and and I would rather my podcast lead to better stewards of the land and the life that they've been given than just a guy have better property and kill bigger deer and better deer because of it. But he's not a better person. And he doesn't care about the land. He just cares what the land can give him. I don't want that. So that's kind of why I go off on these tangents. But I think you guys already understand that. So let's switch gears now from the uncontrollable factors to the more controllable, mostly controllable, or internal factors as I call them, that apply pressure and stress. All right? I'm going to start off with a saying, and I need you to listen to this. Inside the property walls, 
you are the one to blame. For it is you that make the calls. All right? Inside your property walls, you are the one to blame. For it is you that make the calls. We cannot control what happens outside of our property. And I think sometimes too much is wrapped up in that. Guys, use that as an excuse to not focus on what they can control. You know, it, it, it's like the serenity prayer that you hear people say all the time. Uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So guys, I'm telling you right now, those first things that I spoke about, yes, you need to be proactive. You need to think of ways that you can minimize them. But some of the meat and potatoes that we're going to discuss right now and that make up this part of the pyramid, the only person, the only person that you have to blame for its failure is you. It's you. So we've got to begin to understand what things that we do are applying pressure and stress to the property. It's the biggest hurdle. It's the first thing that I, when I go to a property, I'm always thinking, what is the best layout for this property that applies the least amount of pressure, the least amount of stress? Because every time we go to that property, every time we visit it, we leave a story behind. You guys have seen my short white tail minutes about the story we leave behind. And I've said, I don't care what scent precautions you take. I don't care what the wind is. I don't care how long you're there. To some degree, whether faint or strong, we leave a story behind for the deer to have to interpret. The animals have to interpret. And they're either going to see and feel danger from it or not. So our presence there has to be controlled. Some properties are best not hunted hardly at all. Some properties are best saved for one or two sits. And you know what? Honestly, the smaller the property, the more likely it fits into that category. You can overhunt a small property very quickly, insanely quickly. So you've got to learn to control yourself. You know, that's why sometimes taking a, a low pressure hunt elsewhere on a low value type property or public land is something that I think more guys and gals need to do, need to implement, you know. Some people always ask me, Ty, why are you always asking or trying to seek permission on other properties? You have, you, God's blessed you with something. And that's true. I'm down to very few right now, though. Because you know what? Nothing lasts forever. Except for God. But nothing lasts forever. Properties change hands. Families decide to sell properties. Uh, relationship fallouts with people happen. And you lose properties. I've lost at least one every year it feels like for the past couple and usually multiple 
Some I've lost partial control of. Some I'm dealing more and more with having to share it with other hunters. But I'm still blessed to have a place to go to. And eventually, and actually my one place has kind of become my non-prime time place I go sit. And it, it could be so good. Oh, it could be so good. If you would give me two to four years to implement this entire pyramid on that property, I'm telling you guys, I would no longer say that Cicero's the only booner I would ever kill in my life. I would kill another one. I have no doubt in my mind I would. It's that good of a property. But because of the external and internal controllable and uncontrollable pressures on that property, which are plenty, there is a plentiful amount of them, it takes an otherwise nine, nine and a half, ten out of ten property and makes it a four out of ten. And I'm not even joking. And you know what? Some years that might even be giving it a little bit more than I should. But it'll probably never be low. You know, no, I think four is fair because every now and then you never know what's going to come walking out there. And it's still true. It's just less likely. But another thing, so some properties are best not hunted much. That's a that's a that's something you can control. Okay, it's it's your property. Control that. Another thing I see a lot on people's properties and even on some consulting properties is one of the first things I say is, "Well, we you can take that stand down. <laughs> you don't need that one because there is no way unless unless you told unless you somehow told me." about a helicopter that's going to drop you in or you have an underground tunnel system to which then that's awesome and we can hunt that stand. Otherwise, there ain't no need to have it. Some properties don't need multitude of sets. They just don't because you can't get to them without applying pressure. I'm not going to go into that too much because that really leads into one of the core bases which is entrance and exit routes in my opinion but don't figure out how to justify hunting a spot early on or even at all hunt the spots that need no justification if you have to justify a spot and like if I walked your property and I look why do you hunt there if it takes you a long time to try to justify and convince me that it's okay to hunt there you probably shouldn't hunt there. You know, hunt the places that you don't need to justify. Everything just points to green light about that spot. Hunt smart. Don't hunt like an idiot. And you'll begin to see and understand if there are other properties, or other spots, I mean, sorry, not properties, other spots. As you begin to see, you will spot other locations and they'll begin to crystallize. And you'll begin to see the spots that make a lot of sense that you don't need to justify because everything falls in line about it. Another thing that we can control is some properties or location types, they're best suited to hunt a specific manner. Blinds are easier to get set up in if the deer are close. If you can get to it, you know, 
Pops used to hunt in a blind first before me. I don't know if it was climbing a tree or whatever, but hit behind the homestead house, you could slide back there and you could get in. I mean, it was so thick. The trail was cut through a whole bunch of multiflora rows and bush honeysuckle, and there was probably some service berry and, and just a jungle of stuff. But I mean, it was like a, a little narrow tunnel that led to this platform that had a stand or a blind on it. And you could get there and unzip very slowly and slide in and get in there. And there could be deer literally within bow range of you. And if you had to climb a tree, there is no way it was going to happen. Because the homestead property was small. And there was a chance that you could have deer because of how thick it was and the good food sources we had. Deer could be by you at any point. When you stepped into the woods, you had a good chance of being within bow range of a deer. So blinds sometimes are the better choice. And hang-ons, though, are the better choice in other situations. Because hang-ons, they don't disturb the eye, is how I'll describe it. There are some bucks that, I mean, we've seen video of how a trail camera can set a buck off. Now, imagine that same buck walking to a field edge or coming down through the woods, and bam, there's a big ladder stand or a big platform with a blind on it you might cause that buck to never want to come back it's true it's possible which is why you know oftentimes if i'm going to put a big blind like that up i'm going to try to do it in the summer at the latest and even then it may cost me one of my mature bucks maybe gets uneasy young buck maybe even a mature doe every deer is different but you've got to remember that each each spot you got to think what is the easiest and best way to hunt this location maybe a brushed in ground blind is actually the best scenario given the proximity of travel um sometimes we hunt places where we have trouble with stands and, and blinds getting stolen and it's been a reoccurring thing. Well, maybe you need to think about a lot of ground sitting. So then you got to start thinking about what are some ways. So it's just an example of certain properties and certain locations are best hunted in a specific manner. It applies the least amount of stress and pressure to the deer. So then this next thing. It's something that I've already hinted at and we've spoken about before. You've got to learn to say no to other people on high value properties especially this is why i've talked about you know some t a lot of a lot of hunters a lot of the good hunters they may be extroverts they may be outgoing people they may have a lot of friends but it's a solo action when it comes to hunting for them it's a solo endeavor they may bring people in for the recovery and stuff like that in the planning, but they're, they, they solo hunt properties. They're, it's a solitude. Solitude's not the right word. A solitary journey. That's what I was looking for. Because they understand it is not an easy game. It is not an easy battle going head to head with mature bucks. 
And it's hard enough being successful when it's just you, but if you add in other people into that endeavor, it gets really hard really fast. You've got to have the exact same approaches. Because there is no amount of precaution you can take if another person ignores reason and sound hunting strategies. Me and Pops, we have gotten to the point where we're interchangeable. I've spoken about this before. We hunt as one. So much so that we never... Man, at least I can't remember the last time. One of us has hunted a spot that the other one would disagree with. Whether that be due to the time, the wind, the month, the food source location historical debt like whatever factors exist we hunt as one we hunt together we have the same approach we don't force hunts we don't apply pressure when it's not needed we don't just throw hail marys at the deer and part of that is because i know if i hunt stupid it's impacting his chances and if he hunts stupid he knows he's impacting my chances because we don't have the luxury of a ton of properties Our two personal properties are pretty small. So we hunt as one. And and it's actually really cool because if you can get this relationship with another person, another hunter, it's an awesome experience because then it begins to morph into you hunting as one, which means your successes is my successes and my successes are your successes. And it is an incredible experience almost undescribable thing it goes back to sharing the harvest and the moments with somebody who truly is just as joy-filled and joyfully embracing that moment that success almost as their own it's awesome you know anymore it's if pops harvests a deer i feel incredibly happy and joyful It's almost like I harvested that deer. And I pray it's the same way for him because when I'm successful, he's successful because we build and make decisions 100% together. Because if we're going to hunt together, we have to think that way. Because I can undo every good decision he's made during a hunting season with one bad one and he can do the same for me. So you got to learn to say no. I understand. Maybe your grandson wants to go hunting, but maybe hunting your place, your small property, isn't necessarily the best way to introduce him to it or to get him to hunt because he's not ready or willing to follow the guidelines that you're going to lay down. So you're going to be flexible with him. You're going to want to do this and you're going to want to do that. And that's a decision you have to make, okay? I'm not saying say no to your grandkids because Lord have mercy, family trumps hunting every single day of the week. But you know what? I'm actually going to actively pursue some low-value properties for big bucks that hopefully have deer that I can take Bryson to when he gets old enough, when he gets interested in hunting. I don't need to have a chance at a big buck when we go. I want to have a decent chance of deer 
but I don't need to have a chance at a giant buck. I'm not, I'm not laying out. I'm not trying to make this property the perfect property. I'm just trying to attract deer. I'm just trying to kill deer. I'm trying to get my son in front of deer. So the whole intense mindset of everything being woven together and I can't, you know, I'm trying not to make a misstep kind of goes out the window in those moments. I just want him to enjoy and, and experience the outdoors. But if you truly want to try to dive in and you truly want to commit your property to being the, air quotes, perfect property for deer in your pursuit for the top bucks in your area, you got to be willing to say no to family, messing up, joyriding, recreational use of the property. You got to be willing to say no to yourself when you want to go take a trip. You got to be willing to say, no, I'm not going to go check cameras. I literally just checked cameras three weeks ago. It's not hunting season. It's not pouring down outside. I'm not going to go disturb my property and apply pressure merely to get a couple SD cards. I'm not going to do it. You know, if, if, if you can't control yourself... And you can't control the other hunters that you're allowing on the property. You might as well just give up. You got to reorganize your goal. And change your property's goal. From trying to harvest the top bucks in your area. To maybe you just want a recreational enjoy. And love your property. And, and everybody gets to use it as they want. And you know what? You might kill some deer in the process. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the case, I highly doubt you're listening to this podcast. You want to know everything that you can do to make your property the best that it can be. And these are the things that you have got to be able to control. And speaking of the... in integral decisions or the intrinsic decisions that we have to make one of the things that we all must battle every year is getting impatient rushing in applying pressure when we shouldn't ahead of time trying to hunt a spot that really shouldn't be hunted quite yet diving into a property that shouldn't really be dove into at that time you know, only fools rush in is a saying, and it's true. And I've I, 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 I've thought of this saying and this quote. I think every hunter could do better if they approached their property, whether it be in designing their property, whether it be in habitat manipulation, whether it be advancing and changing their soils, pursuing big bucks, the hunting season, it is best to plan for a marathon and discover that it is a sprint than plan for a sprint and discover it is a marathon. Man, sometimes when that first season, that, that first opening day of the season, whatever it is for you, we hit the gas pedal to the floor and boy, our tires are squealing, the rubber is smelling rich and we are flying as fast as we can we're acting like we can already see the finish line and we just got to get there ASAP 
And then we discover that that's not necessarily the case. And what we started out as a sprint is actually a marathon when we come around that first turn. You know, if you picture yourself in the starting blocks of a race and you come out of it and you are just full tilt, chest pumping, arms flailing, you are running in a sprint. You are exerting every last drop of energy. Every step you take, you have a little bit less every time because you are exerting so much. Because you only had 100 meters. And then you see a sign pop up and you hear the announcer say, it's not a 100 meter race, it's a 1,000 meter race. It's a 2,000 meter race now. It's better to start out thinking it's a 2,000 meter race and that first 100 meters is actually when the goal ends. So this fits more so with your hunting season. Don't be foolish. Don't rush in. Don't be dumb. Play the long game. Pretend that it's a marathon. Think that it's a marathon. Approach it like it's a marathon. Plan for a marathon. And if you discover that it's a sprint, so be it. Cicero, I did that very thing. I did not expect that early on in the season. Before my season had even really started. That I'd harvest. Not just one of my trophy bucks, but the trophy buck. And not just a trophy buck, but a 175 class. That marathon that season became a sprint and it was over. But don't get burned out because you're flying into it. That's an internal factor that only you are to blame if you don't control it. All these other factors that we've just talked about in this section, it's you that are to blame. It's not the person that you let on to hunt. You let them on to hunt. You didn't lay out the guidelines. Or if you did, you didn't enforce them. You didn't limit the interactions with the property to lessen the story left behind. To lessen the pressure on the property. To lessen the stress which it induces. You are to blame. No one else. Own it. Change it if you want. Or change your goals. So these are factors. These are the limiting factors. You know, every single property that I <coughs> see continual success at, man, they've got a hard hard line when it comes to being proactive on the things that they can't quite control but they're proactive in their plans on handling them they take every precaution they can to deter trespassing they take every precaution they can to have a very diverse property that can handle weather stress you know what? They don't hunt it when life gets rough or when life throws them curveballs and they just need to be out there. They don't do that. Likewise, these properties have strict plans. Some of them are hunted by individuals by themselves. Others are hunted by multiple people. But they're always approached in the same capacity. They don't hunt stupid. 
oftentimes they don't have a ton of sits, or if they do, some of them don't get hunted for years because it doesn't fall in line with adhering to the plan in which they have. They're consistent in their approach. They have a plan and they implement it. And if their plan fails, they only have themselves to blame. So I say all this, again, to accept that which you cannot control, which a lot of it was at the beginning. But control everything you can almost to like a degree of lunacy. You do that, then this section of the pyramid will unfold before your eyes. And it will be a section that you don't have to worry about. And I had a little writing that followed this at the end, and I'm just going to read it. This doesn't mean to stop thinking of ways to minimize, control, or assist in overcoming issues that are external. But it means pursuing peace more than the pain. I'm speaking to the pain of some of these external factors like I spoke earlier. Trust me, the exhaustion from external issues can truly obliterate your passion and love for hunting. So in closing, accept those external factors for what they are. Have a proactive plan in place and continue to reevaluate and rethink those. And control every single internal and controllable factor that you can with, the with so much zeal that people think you're a lunatic. And this part of the pyramid will be there. I can't wait to delve into the final two sections of the pyramid, which are entrance and exit. That's the bottom. If you're looking at the image, it's the bottom left of the pyramid. And the bottom right is security, which is a massively encompassing section, making deer feel secure, making them feel safe. And a lot of the things that we've done has had that in mind. And it's funny, when you really look at this, and you got food, and then below it, layers and zones, and then below it, limited design pressure, and then below it, entrance and exits on one side, and security on the other. You almost can detach food from this, but these other four are fused together in a way that None of them can truly be accomplished in their entirety without keeping the other ones in mind. You know, so it's not like an all or nothing concept, but like hopefully you've begun to realize you got to have all of this stuff to really have the property. You can have a good property and not have all this. But to have the property, to have the best possible property, to have the air quotes, perfect property. All of these things are working in conjunction. They're like a choir. 
of all the various parts, making a glorious symphony. I just said choir and then used a band reference. I need to be done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to, I guess we could say, Podcast 4, Part 4, or the third part of the of the perfect property pyramid. It means a lot to hear the outpouring of uh, good reviews and thoughts and reflections on this series that's occurring. If this is something you want to hear more of, uh, more of a more of a uh, unpacking of concepts and deliveries of thoughts and such of this nature. Smallacrehunting at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your questions or maybe a topic that you'd like to hear me unpack or thing that maybe you've heard me dabble on but you've never heard me kind of go in depth. Possibly I could do that. Sometimes an audio podcast is not the best venture for various topics, but you never know. Um, if I have the time and the energy and I can try to do what I can. So it means a lot to me that you guys uh, support and appreciate Small Acre Hunting, the podcast, the website, social media. Again, this is not a paid for type endeavor. This is not sponsorships. You guys are the support structure and it means the world. Thank you so much. This is Ty. God bless and good luck out there.